Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, where we discuss all things mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. To get more information and resources, visit the website at therapyforblackgirls.com. And while I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. 
Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session eight of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We are continuing our celebration of Mental Health Awareness Month by discussing relationships. We've talked about friendships. We've talked about dating relationships. We talked about the relationships with our moms. And this week, we're going to be talking about the relationships with our children and parenting. So in this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Mercedes Samudio, who is a licensed clinical social worker. She's a parent coach, speaker, and best-selling author who helps parents and children communicate with each other, manage emotional trauma, navigate social media and technology together, and develop healthy parent-child relationships. Over the course of her career, she has worked with adoptive families, foster families, teen parents, parents navigating the child protective services system, and children living with mental illness. She started the the in parent shaming movement as well as coined the term shame proof parenting using both to bring awareness to ending parent shame. Mercedes is a leading parenting expert and has an amazing following on social media that allows her to reach the hearts of thousands of parents who feel heard and seen on their parenting journey. She has been featured on the Huffington Post, US News and Report, Woman's Day, LA Parent Magazine, CBS LA, and Kids in the House. She seeks to empower parents to believe that they are already great guides for raising healthy and happy children. You can read more about her parenting expertise at shameproofparenting.com. So Mercedes is really one of the leading voices in parenting today, and I am very excited that I'm able to share the conversation that we had um, with all of you. I think that you will find it very good and will be very interested in a lot of the things that she shared. So thank you so much for joining us today, Mercedes. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm very excited to have you on the podcast with us today to talk all about the movement that you started around shame-proof parenting. Um, so can you start briefly by telling us what shame-proof parenting is? Sure. So the idea of shame-proof parenting came from this hashtag that I started about two years ago, which is in parent streaming. That's the hashtag. And as I was getting um feedback from so many people, colleagues, professionals, parents saying, Mercedes, you're so right. We need to stop shaming parents. I had one person ask me, okay, so I'm on board, but how? And I was like, you know what? That's a really great question. How do we become more aware of how we shame parents? And what I was really moved by was not worrying about how other people shame parents, but how parents take on that shame and incorporate it unintentionally and sometimes intentionally into how they raise their children. And so the idea of shame-proof parenting is how do you manage a world that is constantly going to bombard you with these external ideas and values of how a child should be raised? How are you going to take that in and not internalize it in a negative way, but look at it as, is this who I am? Is this how I want to raise my child? Is this the parenting identity that I want to embody? And so the idea of it is that you're going to shame-proof your parenting, not by saying there is no more parenting shame, but by saying, okay, people are going to give me unsolicited advice. People are going to come up to me and point fingers. How am I going to shame-proof myself? How am I going to protect myself, my parenting identity, and the relationship I have with my kids? How am I going to do that? That sounds wonderful. I mean, and as the mom of a three-year-old and a one-year-old, I mean, I definitely, you know, have been reading a lot of parenting books and, you know, everybody wants to try to get it right, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> which, you, which you talk a lot about in your book. Um, but I think that I've not read anything that 
comes from such a, a fresh perspective, like shame-proof parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was reading it, it just felt very heart-centered and something that I was really able to connect with. Um, so, and I want to see if you had any thoughts or, you know, give us your thoughts about why you think um, parenting, it seems like parenting and pregnancy are um, some two of the things that solicit most of this unsolicited advice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so can you talk a little bit about why you think that might be? Sure. So my idea is that parenting is something that everyone's experienced, whether because they were parented, which we all have been, or because they are now coming into their own parenting identity. And I think when you have something as universal as child raising, you definitely are going to have people who have their own ideas about it, right? You have people who think it's supposed to be done this way, who think it's supposed to be done that way. And I would even say over the past 20 years, there's been so much research about how we develop and where some of our behavior comes from that I think has even given more people space to say, well, since we, you know, start off as children, how are we going to raise children to be healthy adults? Well, everyone has an idea about that, whether they are a parent or, you know, they are just coming from their own parenting experience. And so my idea is that because it's such a universal topic, it's something that each and every human on this planet has experienced we have to learn how to lean into what does it mean to bring a human from birth into adulthood? What does that look like? And not do it in a way that shames those people who have taken on that role because you know, even biological, people who are not biological parents take on that role. But how do we create a world where everyone is kind of invested in taking a child from birth into adulthood, not just the people who brought them into the world, but everyone around them. And how can we do that in a way that I think is more village-like, but not in a village where we're all telling you what to do. It's a village where we're all giving you space to find out, to feel into it, to lean into it and to grow. Wow. So you talk a lot about, and you've already talked about today, um, the whole idea of your parent identity. Can Mm. you talk more about what that means? Yes. So I am a licensed clinical social worker, right? So that means I studied all these theories about development. And we pretty much, I would say, have a theoretical understanding of almost every level of development, cognitive, uh, physiological, biological. We have all these developmental understandings of people, and we don't have any type of framework for how does a person move from being just a human on their own to being a human who's raising another human. There is no parenting identity development theory anywhere where we really give people an insight, um, a window into what does it look like to develop a parenting identity? Who am I? You know, I know I was a, a sister and a brother and I was, you know, a CEO of a company, all of those things. You know, I was a wife. I, I was a husband. We have wonderful theories about how to come into those identities, but not about how to come into what does it mean to raise another human? And so that's what I mean by your parenting identity. This piece of you that is another aspect of who you are that is just as important and it needs just as much nurturing as, you know, becoming a wife or becoming the CEO of a company, or, you know, any of these things that we do with all of our other pieces of our identity. So what do you think about, um, and, and recently we've been seeing a lot more, probably with the advent of more and more social media, um, we've been seeing some very public displays of like how people are parenting, right? So most of the time, what goes on in your house in terms of discipline and parenting is only kind of behind closed doors because nobody else sees. But yes. lately, um, I've been witnessing people using social media to really like 
put on display how they are parenting their children. Um, so we've seen examples of, you know, like maybe a kid gets bad grades in class or is cutting up at school and um, he will then have to get like a very embarrassing haircut or, yes. Um, yes. you know, you've seen examples of like moms and dads berating their children about something that has happened, but putting it on social media. Yes. Um, so can yes. you talk a little bit about that and, you know, give us your thoughts about why we are maybe seeing so much more public display of that? Sure. So I think we use social media, most of us as humans use social media to get validation for who we are and what we're doing. We post about what we're eating. We post about where we are. We post all of these things because we want people to see our life. And being a parent, you know, the discipline part is part of your life. It's part of how you want to be validated. And I think in this culture of shaming parents, parents have unfortunately developed this habit of saying, I'm doing the best I can. Look, you see how he's acting. You see what he's doing. You see how she's talking to me. If I can show you that my kid is not this perfect angel that you all think they are, then you'll see that I'm struggling as a parent. And I think that the way that we shame parents has created this, unfortunately, it's created this idea where parents can't say I'm struggling without people saying, well, you should do this and you should do that and you should do this. We don't want to just listen to parents. We don't want to just hear what they're struggling with. We want to tell them right away, well, you know, Joy, you know, when I had a one-year-old, you know, this is what I did. He wouldn't talk to me that way. And my three-year-old would not be jumping all over my couch if I was you. And we don't want to just listen to what is your experience? How are you coming into this? How are you feeling about this? So as a result of us not really having that space for parents, parents have found it. As maladaptive as it may seem, they found that space. Because for every parent that posts something like that and gets flack for it, there's another parent who's everyone saying, girl, yep, that's what I would have done. That's exactly how I would have done it. You know, and so we need to find a healthier space for parents to say, I don't know what to do when my kid brings home bad grades. And that space cannot be full of advice and suggestions. That space has to be full of also empathy and compassion. How does that feel for you to make sure your kid has everything they need and they still can't go to school and do what you, you expect of them? What does that feel like for you? You know, to, to make sure that your kid doesn't have any of the same issues you had when you were a kid and for your kid to still talk back to you. What does that feel like? I think when we can start giving parents that space, we'll stop seeing so much of these public displays of kind of validation that I think parents are looking for when they post stuff like that. So you're really talking about something that's pretty transformative, you know, like this idea of kind of creating a safe space in a lot of ways for parents to be able to share, yes, I'm struggling, and for the, the circle and the community to be able to hold the concern without automatically jumping in with all these advice and things I would have done. Yes. And if you, if we're really being honest, we have that almost everywhere else in our lives. You know, when you go to your girlfriend's house, say, girl, pour me some wine. She pours you wine and just let you cry. She doesn't try to tell you to leave that man and get out of that house. She'll just let you cry and drink her whole bottle of wine. You know, when you go to somebody and you say, girl, I hate this job. They don't say, girl, you just leave that job. Put your two weeks notice in. They say, well, tell me about it. What's going on? You know, can I help? What can I do? What do you need? But when parents start to say that, we immediately think, well, you know, you got to do positive parenting. You got to do this parenting. You know, we got to do this. And we don't want to give parents that space to be frustrated, to, to make mistakes, to say, I don't know what to do. I don't know where my expectations should be. Should I expect my kid to make straight A's or should I not? Should I hope that my siblings won't ever fight or should I not? What, where, what do I do? Where's the baseline? We need to give parents space to find out what their baseline is in accordance with their parenting identity and their personality and in accordance with the people they have in their homes, the children they have in their homes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
So how would you say we could go about starting to create this kind of a culture shift? Well, you know, I posit this. I think we, it first starts with us understanding and identifying, first for parents, identifying where does your shame come up? Because not every parent has the same level of shame. You know, I might think that you're upset with your kid for getting an F, but that not, might not be where your shame is. It might be in some other aspect uh, of your parenting identity or in your family that you've created. And I think it starts with just listening just hearing, not assuming that Joy is having a hard time with her three-year-old, but listening to what's really happening. You know, what is happening to you, Joy? Is it just the three-year-old? Is it, is it your business? Is it this? Is it that? What's really causing, you know, all of this discomfort for you? Once I figure that out, then I can start to say, well, what do you need? Do you need X? Do you need Y? Do you need parenting? You know, I, I've noticed that some of my parents, the kid actually isn't even the issue. It's just that they've had a horrible day at work and they just want to come home and go to sleep, but they can't because people need food and people need clothes, and people need homework done. And so that's where the frustration comes from. So when we just listen to parents and listen to what aspects of their life are really impeding or becoming a barrier to their parenting, whether it's the parenting and the kid itself or if it's something else, then we can begin to, I think, hold a space for parents and give them the advice that's actually unique to them and their situation. That sounds wonderful. That, that absolutely sounds wonderful. And I think that your book is going to give us some really good strategies about how we can be able to kind of create this culture shift in, in terms of parenting. Yes. And I think you're right. It is a culture shift. I think we live in a very public culture where almost everything is either in the news or on social media. And I think we are still in this period of transition and adjustment adjustment to how do we live in a world where everything is so public? How do we live in a world where almost everything we do can be scrutinized? Because even if you yourself don't, you know, take a picture of what's going on with your family, someone else can. Someone else can be in the store and take a video of you trying to manage your child's tantrum and posting online, you know, and I think living in this world, it's definitely going to be a cultural shift of how do we use this technology and, and this access to better ourselves as opposed to continuously destroying ourselves with it. So what do you think um, are some of the most common missteps we make as parents? You know, so you have tons of experience working with parents on a variety of issues. Um, mm -hmm. So if you could give us some insight about some of the most common missteps you see parents make and how um, we may be able to be able to again, begin thinking differently about parenting. Yeah, so um, I believe one of them that I see quite a bit is this idea that your child is an extension of you and that you have to make your child a decent human being. And I think that level of pressure is what kind of exacerbates a lot of the other things that happen in the world. We're constantly worried about what other people are going to say when my three-year-old can't sit at the table and eat food, when that actually just might not be who your kid is. There are some three-year-olds who are great and there are some who no matter how many times you threaten them, they're not going to sit down. And so really learning how to say, I am a human, right? And really get in touch with that. I talk about that a lot in the book. Get in touch with your own humanity. Get in touch with your own identity because the more you do that, the more you have space to empathize with this other human you're tasked with raising, that this other human is just as flawed and just as amazing as you are. And I think that kind of, you know, that kind of is the umbrella for most of the, the common uh, barriers and, and issues that I see in parents. And then I think the other one is learning how to communicate in different ways than just talking. So most people and most of the parents who can pay for my services and work with me, they're great at speaking, but they're not always great at hearing the emotional communication and the more nonverbal communications that we all have to learn how to be nuanced with in our, in our relationships. And I think in the parenting relationship, the parent-child one, it's even harder to deal with because 
everyone says, you're the parent, you better control that kid. You better make sure that they don't think or do anything out of line. And I think that's a really horrible expectation to place on a parent to do for a kid. Because like I said, you're human and so is your kid. You can't control another human. I don't care if it did come out of you or not. So really kind of these two concepts of managing our expectations of who we're going to be when we become parents and the children that we are tasked with raising and at the same time learning how to communicate in more ways than just that verbal speaking um, level of communication. So what might that look like? Can you give us some ideas about like how you could learn to communicate, you know, especially with like a three-year-old who is, you know, kind of verbal, but not super understanding, you know, as, as much as you do as an adult. So how can you begin to communicate with them differently? Well, I think one of the ways, and I, I feel this is across, I know, age, age um, groups, is play. So kids, especially younger kids, zero to five, you find out so much when you just watch them play with each other. You find out the things that they're picking up. You find out the cultural things that they're picking up. You find out the gender things that they're picking up. You find out the things that maybe you didn't think they, they heard, but they did. Really watching them play. And you don't have to be a therapist to understand, you know, if your kid is doing something. But when your kid is playing with their cars and they're constantly trying to kill everybody in the car set, that lets you know there might be some aggression. Your three-year-old can say, mom, I'm really mad. But if you just told them you can't have that and they go in the room and they destroy all of their, their toys, that's anger, right? Learning how to read these nonverbal cues of, okay, he didn't tell me he's mad, but I can tell that he went in there and played all of his cars or in a car accident right now. He's probably feeling a little bit of aggression towards either me or something else that's going on in the house. And I think you can even notice that with older kids, you know, kids, we don't always have, even as adults, the right language to share how we're feeling or what's, what we're experiencing internally. But it's really about getting quiet enough to say, what, what am I seeing? We just had this issue. We just had this conflict or we just had this really great day. And what am I seeing outside of the words they're using? How are they interacting with everyone in the house? How are they interacting with their things or the teachers? TV shows they're watching, or as kids get older, they start to, you know, like certain clothing and certain music. All of these things are nonverbal ways that we communicate to each other that if, as a parent, you can kind of get in tune with that, you can start even noticing how to give your kids that emotional language, right? You see your kid, like I said, three-year-old having all of his cars in a car accident, you can say, wow, that must be really frustrating, you know, to have everybody be in a car accident. How are you going to solve that? How are you going to help everybody? Right. And you're helping this kid develop this language that they don't have, but they're showing it through their play or through these nonverbal cues. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what you talk about, like we've already mentioned, feels very transformative. But at the basic level, which you just mentioned, um, really just sounds like being very present and being, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of in tune with what's happening with your child. Yes. And I also tell my parents that it starts with them because a lot of the parents that I work with, you know, they're part of this, this culture of go, go, go. And so I think a lot of times, you know, parents have so much on their plate that they even get out of tune with themselves. I've met parents who tell me they don't eat, they don't sleep. And it's like, are you listening to your body? What's going on for you first? There's no way you can have that type of attunement with a child that's outside of you if you don't have it with yourself first. If you're not you know, when you get a headache, do you know where that came from? You know, when you're just angry for no reason because someone left a piece of paper in the middle of the floor, do you know where that anger is coming from? Do you know where that resonates from? So it's this idea of first starting with yourself and saying, wow, I get really angry when everyone keeps going in and out of the house. What is that about? What are my values about going in and out of the house? Where did I learn those values from? And then being able to say, okay, now I can look at someone else and figure out how their nonverbal cues are triggering them. 
you know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to go back um, a little bit to talk more about or to see if you have any more insight about um, the role that social media plays with our in terms of parenting. Um, and I'm not sure about you, but I am a part of um, like a lot of like Facebook mommy group kinds of yes. things. So like yes. about breastfeeding and, you know, once they start school and all of this stuff. Um, and you definitely will see a lot of these mommy wars um, yes. kind of play out like Facebook yes. feels like a breeding ground for a lot yes. of that. Um, yes. And so I wanted to hear your insights about like, how is that related to like the shame proofing? Like, does some of that come out of shame? I think it does. I think we all, again, like I said earlier, I think everyone has an idea about what it means to parent. It's a very universal thing to have an idea about. And so once you're in the thick of it, you're in these groups trying to figure out is what I'm doing valid? Is this, is what I'm doing viable? And so you have people, when you go back to who they are as humans, they don't always know how to ask for help or how to give help because they themselves are dealing with their own journey on being emotionally intelligent or or being able to be present in the world. So what I teach my parents about shame proofing is this, find the village that feels resonant for you. So if you're in four or five mom groups and you've never felt like posting to get help, that's probably not the mom group you need to be in. You know, you need to find, say, okay, what do I need? Well, I'm a mom who really likes the outdoors and I really want to, you know, help my kids learn how to go into the outdoors. So you maybe want to be in a group that talks about that, or you might want to start one. If you're a parent who's more mindful, then you might want to be in a group that's more mindful. If you're a parent who believes in breastfeeding until your child weans off on their own, no matter how old they are, then you might want to be in a group or start a group for that. I think sometimes we will force ourselves to stay in different tribes or different groups because we feel like, well, I've got to learn, you know, I've got to toughen up. And I don't believe in that. I don't believe that when you toughen up, it helps you. I believe that when you toughen up and and you just keep yourself in this, it makes you way more disconnected from yourself and, and then eventually your child. So when you're on Facebook or you're in any type of online um, community, just ask yourself, when's the last time I felt like I could actually post in there and get support the way I need support? If you can't even think when's the last time that was it, then you might need to leave out of that group. If you said the last couple of times I've checked in, I felt so, you know, I felt horrible. I felt this, this nagging discomfort, then that might not be the group for you. Does that mean it's a horrible group? I can't say, but it's more about worrying about what do I need to feel supported and how do I get that support? And then going to find that for yourself. Got you, got you. So really, when we're talking about like how we can shame proof our parenting, we're really talking about starting with ourselves. So not so much about like how to fix my child, but what, how am I parenting in a way that, you know, is not consistent with who my child actually is. Right. Right. And I think that's, I think it's difficult though, because again, our our world tells us differently. Our world says, you've got to control that kid. If anything happens, it's your fault. If this kid grows up to be anything that's abnormal or not correct, it's your fault. So I think parents are constantly in that contention of, I've got to make sure I'm doing it right, but it's not always in alignment with what I, who I have in my home. And so I think that's the part of shame-proof parenting that I'm trying to get you know, this kind of cultural shift that we're talking about, which is start with your home first. Start with who you have first and then go out to the world. Don't let the world tell you where to start and then you come back home. 
So I do think it is important for us to talk about um, the cultural pieces to shame, um, because I do think, I mean, and we can kind of see this playing out in the media that if there is a teenager who um, commits a crime, um, like a black teenager does something, then there's a lot of talk about, well, what do the parents do and where are they and all this kind of stuff. Whereas maybe if it's a white teen, then it's just teens being teens kind of thing. Right. Um, And so I want to hear your thoughts about um, any particular cultural aspects that we need to be mindful of in terms of being black parents. Yes, definitely. And I think you're speaking to something that's very systemic, right? That there's still racism, there's still people who judge you based on how you look and the in the race that you identify with versus who you actually are. And I think for, you know, any minority family, especially if you're in a more oppressed minority like African Americans unfortunately are in America sometimes, it's really important to start off with who are you and how do you want your family to show up in the world? Yes, we can worry about how people see us, but I think we really want to model for kids that no matter how people see you, how do you want to show up in the world? You know, I think sometimes people still think all black people spank their kids and that's not always true. You know, there are definitely a lot of, you know, black parents who believe in positive parenting, who believe in positive discipline and don't spank their children. And I think it's really important on that same line that we have more cultural people out speaking about child raising practices is not just the kind of people who identify in the white culture always being the parenting experts. You know, we need more African-American parenting experts. We need more Latino parenting experts. We need more Asian parenting experts. So that way we can start to understand that culture plays such a huge role in how I raise my kid. If I have a black son, I'm probably going to talk to him a lot differently than if I have a white son because of just the way the world experiences him. And so I think that if we have more people, more experts talking about it this way, we can start to really again, have this cultural shift of the way that people parent has to be very unique to not only their home, but their cultural experience, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, their religious identity. All of these things start with the parent first, recognizes it for themselves. Who are we? What is our, what is our family? How do, I, how do we identify? And then how do I help my children now understand that same identity and go out into the world? So are there particular strategies that you might offer to Black parents about, you know, like how to really tap into this shame for themselves? Well, talk about it. Like, literally, how does it show up for you? Because Mm -hmm. if you say to me, you know, I'm scared for my Black son, and that's why I spank him, then we need to talk about that. What do you think the spanking is going to do? What do you think the beating is going to do? Do you think that's going to prepare him for a world that will also probably beat him and be rude to him? Or do you think that's going to make him harder? What do you think? And I think as you start to talk into it, it gives, again, that parent that space to say, I don't really know you know, I don't really understand, or yes, I think it is the way it's going to be. And I think we have to be really open to that fluidity of people feeling like this is how I'm experiencing the world. And that's how I'm going to teach my children. And then having them talk through, what does that do? What is the outcome? What, what do you want for your, your son? What do you want for your black daughter? What do you want? And then helping them find healthy ways to get them there that might not always, you know, seem like, you know, the best ways. I know sometimes um, our African-American culture can kind of scoff at the parent, the positive parenting stuff, because it feels like whitewashed, but we really have to talk about what do you want for your children? children? How do you want them to show up in the world and talk to the parts of, talk to shame in a way that it comes up for you? 
Yeah, I mean, and I do think you are offering a different framework for questions to have and, you know, Mm -hmm. conversations to have with our children, Uh, because even in just observing online conversations, you can see like there's this delicate balance between um, like how much do you step in, I think, especially um, with like black male children, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like at what point do you kind of help them realize like how the world sees them and like not want them to be shocked, you know? So it's almost like you want to kind of be able to kind of break the ugly truth to them before the world does. Um, And, and, and and honestly, I don't know the answer to that. You know, like I don't know if it's better to kind of say, okay, this is kind of how you have to be prepared to show up in the world versus kind of letting it happen. Right. And if I can speak to that a little bit, I think that's the importance of having that village. That's the importance of really creating these villages where we're not shaming parents, but we we give parents a space to do what you just said, which is, I don't know when to break it to my Black sons that the world is not going to see them the same way I do. When do I do that? And to have that that community kind of village where we talk about how do we do that? Do we do it now? Do we do it later? How do we prepare them so they're not angry and they don't lash out at the world once they find out? Like, how do we do that? And I think, again, that goes back to what I said about having more people of, of color speaking about child raising practices because we need more frameworks for that. We need more space for that. Yeah. So do you have some resources or other ideas about like, besides your book, of course, um, you know, like other people or other um, resources that people should be paying attention to? Well, there are two authors that I like a lot. I think that they are starting to talk about it. So there is Asada Kirkland, and she has a book called Beating Black Children, where it talks about the culture of African Americans and spanking. And then there is another author. Her name is Dr. Stacey Patterson, Pattinson. Oh, I feel like I'm, I'm messing up her last name, but her book is called Spare the, Spare the Rod or Spare the Child. And she, again, talks about how spanking has kind of infiltrated its way into our culture and what, and what kind of prescriptions we can do to get it out of our culture. Okay, perfect, perfect. And yeah. any other like websites or like TED Talks or any other things that you've um, heard or come across that you think would be helpful for people to get more information and start kind of building this village and thinking differently about how we're parenting? So those two people I really like, I like, um, and it's not about parenting, but I really like um, Brene Brown, her work around shame and how she's brought that to the limelight, shame and vulnerability. I think any of her talks are really poignant and, and very insightful. And then there's another parenting author who is a woman of color herself, Dr. Shafali Sabari. And she also has her own books as well as her own TED Talks where she talks about conscious parenting and kind of some of the things that I've talked about. She also, you know, has coined and, and began to talk about where it's about really honoring yourself first and then moving into how that looks in your parenting. So I do want to hear more, Mercedes, about like your practice um, and like what does this look like? When would parents typically contact you? Um, talk to me a little bit about the work that you do. So I do a little bit of everything now. I do a lot of speaking, so I'm, I'm kind of increasing my speaking. So I've been doing that more, a little bit more workshops. And then in terms of one-on-one, um, I have it set up where parents can come to my website and they can schedule 45-minute sessions or 60-minute sessions where we work virtually. And we pretty much work on whatever it is that's bothering you in that moment. And we begin to talk about what it is that you know you can, be, how you can shift your perspective so that way you can be more present and you can become more aware of how shame infiltrates 
infiltrates your life and then also how your own identity has to be cultivated before you can start changing your child or fixing your child, quote unquote. And so what I do with that is I, I record each session. If you want the recording, I send it to you. And the week after we have done our one-on-one session, you have unlimited text and email support from me as well. Nice. Very nice. Yes. So what are some strategies? So let's say somebody grabs a copy of your book, which I do encourage everyone to do. Um, they get a copy of your book. What are some of the beginning strategies? Like if I'm just starting out and I'm new to hearing about this shame-proof parenting, um, what are some of the beginning strategies you'd offer our parents to get started? I would say the first thing to do is to give yourself a lot of empathy. Um, Picking up any parenting book and deciding to change your parenting is a journey. It is a lifelong journey, just like being a parent is a lifelong journey. So first tell yourself that this is a journey that I'm committed to, that I'm committed to changing. I'm committed to taking small steps each day. And I'm committed to giving myself empathy when I go back to doing some of my old stuff because I'm learning, I'm changing, I'm doing things differently. And I've seen that when parents do that for themselves, they have even more space to do it to their kids when their kids mess up or their kids make the wrong decisions. And so that's something that I think no matter what you do in your parenting, if you can start with that empathy, and even if you can start with that emotional intelligence, you're really giving yourself and your child a great foundation to manage conflict and behavior issues that might come up. That sounds great. That really sounds great. So it sounds like you're saying, um, you know, like when we can stop shaming each other as parents, then Uh we don't also um, induce this sense of shame in our in our children, because it, it feels very circular. It is. I think it is because when you are shaming yourself, saying I'm a horrible parent. Oh, I yelled again. Oh, I did this again. I suck. You have no space to give empathy to anyone else. You're really kind of filling your bucket with a lot of negativity. And if that's what you're doing, how can you give positivity from a bucket of negativity, right? It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't make any logical sense. So you have to start off with this idea of I'm going to take a step forward. Even if I take a step back, every time that I do that, say, okay, Mercedes, you yelled, but you can say sorry, you can move forward and you can work on something else. Like you have to give yourself that space or else you'll constantly beat yourself up and then you'll constantly end up, you know, doing the same thing to your kids. So I think, like you said, it's a very cyclical relationship. So where can we find more information about you? Where can we get a copy of the book? How do we follow you online? So you can pretty much start with all of that on my website, shameproofparenting.com. On there, I have a link to get my book, which is on Amazon, and it will soon be on Barnes & Noble and The Nook as well. And you will also find all of my social media. You'll find my YouTube show, The Family Couch, as well as all of my blogs and video blogs that I have right there from starting out at my website. Thank you so much for taking this time to chat with us, Mercedes. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So as you can tell, Mercedes has a lot of great ideas about how we can really transform our culture around parenting and um, reducing some of the shaming that we do of each other as parents. So I hope that you will grab a copy of her book and read more about her thoughts. I do really think that it will be um, a great thing to, to introduce into your parenting style or just to help you to expand your thinking about parenting and how we can have better relationships with our children. So please make sure to join me next week for our final episode of um, Celebration of Mental Health Awareness Month. We will be talking all about the relationship with yourself. Please make sure to join the conversation over on social media and use the hashtag TBG in session. 
You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Therapy for Black Girls. And you can find us on Twitter at Therapy for the number four B-Girls. Please make sure to share this episode and any of your other favorite episodes with the, the women in your life. And make sure to use the hashtag TBG in session. I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation with you real soon. Take good care. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there.